0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Poem Peeps. We are excited to be bringing you another one of our amazing fellows' case files, and today we're going to hear from a fellow in training along with their fellowship program director. Monty, how are you doing
1: today? Hey, Farf. Doing great. And um, super excited to head back to my home state of Texas to meet some great educators and hear about another fantastic program. So if you're listening today and have a case you want to share, definitely reach out to us, and we'd love to have you on the show. Let's go ahead and get started and meet our two guests coming to you today from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And first, I'd like to introduce Dr. Benjamin Moss. Uh, Ben completed his internal medicine residency training at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and is currently a senior pulmonary and critical care fellow there. Ben, we want to welcome you to Palm Peeps, and we'd love for you to share one thing you love about Houston right from the start.
2: Hey, thank you so much for having me here. I'm going to go with the Bayes for Houston. I think it's a pretty cool, cool feature of the city.
0: Next, we have Dr. Philip Alipot. Philip is an assistant professor of medicine and the program director of the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship at Baylor. He completed his residency and fellowship training at Baylor, so he's a lifer, and we can't wait to hear more about the program from him. It's great to have you on the show today.
3: Hey, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here and supporting Ben. Um, It's interesting you mentioned that I did my training here. It's almost two decades now that I've been here. So yes, it has been a while. And our program is a is what I think is a very nice program. One of the larger programs in the nation with a significant uh, breadth of clinical training, experience in all aspects of uh, pulmonary and critical care clinical practice. And we are located in the middle of the Texas Medical Center, which is considered uh, one of the largest collections of healthcare institutions in the world.
0: Wow, it's incredible. We're glad to be joined by you guys today.
1: Awesome. And just as our quick disclaimer before we get started with our case, our podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice and the views we express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. Uh, We're going to present a HIPAA-compliant case for you all today and some details may have been changed to protect the privacy of our patient. Ben, it sounds like you have a really great case that you encountered during your fellowship training. So why don't you tell us how your patient initially presented?
2: Yeah, so we have a 50-year-old man with seropositive rheumatoid arthritis on rituximab who is presenting with dyspnea and cough, and overall just not feeling well. For the past week, he's had malaise, body aches, and subjective fever. And for the past three days, he's had acutely worsening dyspnea that is worse with exertion, but present at rest as well, and he's had a cough with scant sputum production. A few other important points to mention at this time regarding his history is that he had been on methotrexate previously, but within the last year, he developed pancytopenia and methotrexate was stopped and he was switched to Humira. Pancytopenia did not resolve and he was ultimately diagnosed with Felty syndrome, which which is a triad of rheumatoid arthritis, neutropenia, and splenomegaly. And he was switched to rituximab every six months with his last dose being four months ago. During this last week, he tried taking prednisone 10 milligrams a day, but his symptoms did not improve.
0: Wow. Sounds like a really interesting case so far. So, you know, I'd say we have an immunocompromised middle-aged man. He's presenting with acute onset of fevers, malaise, and with a cough and shortness of breath on exertion and and progressing to the point where it's at rest as well. You know, so based on this, my, my highest concern is certainly for an underlying infectious process. Uh, Given that fact that he has more acute nature and that he's at risk, you know, he's at risk for multiple reasons. He has an underlying autoimmune disease. You know, so we have to take that into account if if that makes him more prone to certain types of infections. Uh, He had you mentioned that he had. Um, been on rituximab. He's also taking prednisone. These are medicines that will cause immunosuppression in and of itself, uh, and could make him more prone to certain types of infectious etiologies. And that he had at some point a pancytopenia. Presumably, he's not neutropenic anymore. But if he were, you know, that we'd really consider some sort of bacterial or encapsulated infections there. You know, I think we always have to think broadly and think, could this be an inflammatory condition, a flare of his RA or something else that's going on? Uh, But certainly infection is one, two, and three on the differential right now. So, you know, some clarifying questions I like to get besides the stuff you gave us already about his condition and his meds or what other exposures has he had? Has anyone around him been sick? Does he do anything or in his environment that we'd be worried about that could cause this? So I'd be interested in hearing a bit more about his history, including uh, his comorbidities and other contacts. Ben, can you tell us a little bit more of this information?
2: Yeah, definitely. So his past medical history is notable for rheumatoid arthritis, as I talked about before. He does also have COPD, and he's on two liters of oxygen at home with exertion. He also has a history of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and his last CF was between 40 and 50%. He has compensated cirrhosis that's thought to be due either to hep C that was treated or NASH. And then he does have a history of latent TB that was treated six years ago. And he also has uh, insulin dependent diabetes. Some of his pertinent home medications include Lasix, atorvastatin, uh, lisinopril, apenolol, and, and hydrochlorothiazide. Uh, and he also takes uh, B12 injections and some vitamins. As far as his social history, he is a former smoker uh, with a 50 pack year history who quit over 10 years ago. And he has no significant drug use or occupational exposures. So other pertinent negatives in the review of system, um, he had no vision changes or sinus symptoms, no hemoptysis, no chest pain or chest discomfort, no orthopnea or leg swelling, and no um, sick contacts or recent travel. As far as his initial vitals, his temperature was 98.2. His blood pressure was 144 over 77 with a heart rate ranging from 70 to 90. His respiratory rate was 17. His oxygen saturation was 90% on room air and improved to 96% with two liters of nasal cannula. For his initial exam, in general, he was not in any distress, and he was alert and oriented. Uh, his mucous membranes were moist. He had no, no oral lesions. His cardiovascular exam was normal. He had no uh, leg edema. On pulmonary exam, he did have scattered bilateral crackles. His abdomen was soft. Uh, his neuro and psychiatric exams were normal. And then for his skin, he had a, on his left forearm, he had these discrete, scattered, firm erythematous plaques. Uh, which were new for him, and that he also had chronic rheumatoid nodules on his left forearm. So Christina, does any of this information change how you're building your differential diagnosis for this patient?
1: Thanks, Ben. Yeah, that's a great question. I think you highlighted some very important pertinent positive as well as negatives with regards to his history and physical exam. You know, and I think understanding that he has a history of COPD requiring supplemental oxygen with exertion is important for a few reasons. And although we don't have PFTs stated on him, given his O2 needs with exertion, I suspect him having at least moderate to severe obstruction, along with at least a moderate gas transfer defect. So he may have a more limited reserve um, than someone without underlying lung disease. Thank think you mentioned, you know, no significant peripheral edema, but he does have a history of decreased cardiac function. So having, you know, acute decompensated heart failure on the differential is important. But I think as first said, I'm still definitely thinking of of an infectious etiology. You know, fortunately, he's hemodynamically stable and not requiring more than two liters nasal cannula. But I think some important things that you mentioned is, is immunosuppressed from his rituxan. And I think you start to think of specific pathogens for him. So still common things being common, you know, I want to have bacterial infection with pneumonia on the differential and also consider untreated and possibly complications of that, such as an abscess or empyema. You know, you didn't mention any kind of physical exam findings to support that, but important to get kind of with imaging for um, additional follow-up. Other things we can consider is obviously COVID and non-COVID viral infections, as well as the possibility of fungal infections, I think is definitely higher in him as a substrate. And then we can think of reactivation of his TB. But overall at this point, I really think it's important to take a step back when you hear that a patient is immunosuppressed and try to understand how immune responses may be impaired by certain diseases or pharmacologic agents. So Ben, can you walk us through how you try to think about this or the framework that you look at when thinking about someone being immunosuppressed?
2: Yeah, definitely. So overall we can think about three main immune deficiencies that our patients can have, T cell, B cell, and then neutrophil or macrophage impairment. So immunodeficiencies aren't always so clearly uh, defined, but it can be helpful to think about these broad groups. And first off, it is important to note that they will all have increased susceptibility to respiratory viruses and bacterial pneumonia, but especially neutropenic patients and those ones on long-term steroids. So looking at B-cell deficiencies and hypogamma globulinemia, these can be caused by asplenism or splenectomy, common variable immune deficiencies, medications targeting B-cells like rituximab, or cancer of B-cells like myeloma or CLL. And these patients will be uh, especially susceptible to pneumonia from encapsulated organisms, namely like strep pneumo, Neisseria, and H flu. T-cell deficiency can occur in any solid organ transplant, patients on steroids or certain chemotherapies, or cancer of the T-cells like leukemias or T-cell lymphomas. Deficiency of T cells should make you think of opportunistic infections like cryptococcus, non-tuberculous mycobacterial, toxoplasma, uh, pneumocystis, or a systemic viral infection. And then lastly, deficiency of neutrophils and macrophages can be caused by, by anything leading to neutropenia, like chemotherapy, or neutrophil dysfunction like diabetes, anything leading to cancer like myelodysplastic syndrome, AML, stem cell transplant, solid organ transplant, or steroids. In these conditions, you need to think about opportunistic infections like toxoplasma, systemic viral infections, and then other agents like nocardia, mycobacteria, and importantly, molds and yeast like aspergillus and mucor.
0: Ben, I think that's fantastic. Thanks for going through it. You know, I think This type of framework is so helpful. And I've tried to build it over time, even for myself. And you you express it really eloquently where you're not really thinking about, oh, what med are they on and what is the side effect or like what's the risk profile? You're just sort of getting into what the underlying mechanism is, because I feel like there's a new chemotherapeutic, there's a new monoclonal antibody every day that we're seeing a patient on. And so now if you can understand what cell line it's affecting, you have a better sense of what infections you have to look out for. So I really like that. Uh, so, Philip, knowing that this patient is immunocompromised and presenting with these symptoms, I'm sure all, all of us are saying, well, let's just get a chest CT so we can start and take a look at everything. Uh, but in addition to that, if you're attending, what other diagnostics do you want to make sure we're getting sort of right away?
3: As consultants, we you generally are going to see these patients with at least some of this workup already done. And so when we are seeing these patients, we usually have that CBC with differential, the CMP, and basic infectious evaluation. But I'm often surprised by how often the basic sputum evaluation is missing in this uh, initial evaluation. And so these are the things we certainly want to make sure are available. That sputum evaluation should include these special stains for and cultures for fungi and and tuberculous infections. And that may require, you know, even placing the patient in a, in an isolation type uh, uh, room to uh, facilitate the uh, obtaining of these uh, samples. Otherwise, uh, respiratory viral panels may be of uh, benefit. Uh, actually, in this day and age, if you don't get a COVID test on a patient, you would probably be committing malpractice. So that's absolutely necessary. And then, uh, you know, the, the basic other uh, viral panels may be of uh, benefit in trying to at least elucidate some aspect of disease, but also remembering that In these immunosuppressed patients, just because say your RSV uh, is positive, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the only disease process happening, and it may be necessary continue to look for other causes of the patient's disease. Other specific tests include uh, things like the serum galactomannan, which is of some benefit, but needs to be utilized in that clinical context because. It uh, only lends support for uh, aspergillus infections when it is positive, and it's also positive uh, at different levels, at different institutions, and so requires some degree of expertise uh, and experience in in recognizing the patient population that you're getting this test on and where you feel uh, galactomanin level is of significance. Remember that uh, this test is only about 70 to 80% sensitive and specific for invasive aspergillosis, and false positive tests can occur because of cross-reactivity with the uh, cell wall colactamanin from other fungi like blastomyces and histoplasma. The fungital assay or the beta-D glucan is not usually of significant clinical benefit because of a lack of specificity, but it can also suggest a, a fungal infection. And then the urinary testing for uh, specific antigens uh, such as Legionella and pneumococcus may be of benefit because of their high specificity, meaning if it's positive, then it's diagnostic, but if negative, the test adds uh, very little to this evaluation. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, Dave, the idea of uh, chest imaging, First with chest x-ray, I still like the chest x-ray because uh, if it's normal, then you're heading down a different path. And if it's abnormal, you're more than likely going to be requiring a chest CT to better delineate exactly what that abnormality is.
1: And Philip, yeah, I definitely like you just also, your, your teaching point of understanding the sensitivity and specificity of tests and, you know, the clinical context in which we're ordering them from. Because it's so easy to order tests, but... If something's abnormal, what are we going to do about it? So I I like your point on us being being very mindful of that. So Ben, can you tell us a little bit more about the workup that your patient had?
2: So as far as his lab work, he had a white count of two with an absolute neutrophil count of 1,200, a platelet count of 150. On his chemistries, he had a sodium of 132. His creatinine was elevated above his baseline at 1.6. And the rest of his chemistries and liver function tests were normal. So his chest x-ray on admission showed right, mid, and lower lung opacities that were suggestive of pneumonia, and these were new compared to his previous chest x-ray. And of course, he did go on to get a CT of the chest, which showed development of new multiple lung nodules and masses and ground glass opacities. The largest mass was 4 centimeters in the left upper lobe, and all the masses were surrounded by ground glass opacity halo. He also had an infracrinal lymph node that was known to have increased in size and was now 1.3 by 2.2 centimeters. And he did also get a forearm biopsy given the new rash with uh, with numerous erythematous plaques. This showed neutrophilic dermatosis and the GMS was negative for any fungal um, species.
1: Thanks, Ben, and definitely some interesting chest imaging findings, and we'll definitely make sure that we post these online so that everyone can take a look at them and and learn from them as well. And I really want to take just a minute or two just to highlight how you describe some of the findings, you know, specifically the mass surrounded by a ground glass opacity halo or what we commonly characterize as a halo sign. So a, a reminder for those listening today, this is a ground glass opacity surrounding a pulmonary nodule or mass. And this usually indicates some type of local vessel invasion or hemorrhage. And I think when you see this, most tend to think of a fungal infection being high on the differential. And uh, just to contrast this, we did do uh, prior radiology rounds on a reverse halo sign, right? So, kind of the opposite of what I just described, but that being a central ground glass opacity surrounded by dense consolidation. And this usually indicates uh, central alveolar inflammation surrounded by some granulomatous tissue. Again, highly suggestive of a fungal infection, or even the classic association that this uh, reverse halo sign was associated with was organizing pneumonia or COP.
0: That's great. Thanks, Monty, for going over it. I also just like want to highlight for a second the neutrophilic dermatosis. You know, this is an interesting finding, and it's always so helpful to get a biopsy even of a non-line site to start thinking about the associated syndrome. So, you know, I, I more think of that as associated with rheumatoid arthritis, certainly sweet syndrome, like some underlying autoimmune inflammatory condition and like less infectious stuff. So, you know, the CT, the imaging all is really kind of concerning for some of this infectious physiology. And then I'm curious if this is going to be related to why the patient's here or is just giving me a sense of their underlying condition. So- I, you know, I just think that's really interesting. Uh, Philip, I feel like at this point in the diagnostic workup, you know, we're thinking about tissue. We, we've said on this show before, tissue is the issue and, and the question of bronchoscopy comes up. So could you tell us what you would want to look for or, or send on a bronchoscopy? And in these types of cases, are you just getting in, getting whatever sample you can? Are you also doing transbronchials, EBIS, cryobiopsies? Like what, type of, what type of procedure are you sending this patient for?
3: Yeah, so in this case, with the findings that you're seeing, which include just the parenchymal pulmonary nodules and this the, the concept of the halo sign, the uh, understanding that the, there's a likely fungal infection starts um, becoming more prominent. And so, unfortunately, with invasive fungal infections, uh, the really only the only way to establish that diagnosis is with a biopsy. And so that is why we would be really pushing for the biopsy, the bronchoscopic uh, lung biopsy, if at all possible. Doesn't look like there's any significant obvious contraindications in this patient, in that the patient doesn't have a terrible coagulopathy or some other clinical instability that would uh, prevent this procedure from being able to be done. But even in a patient who is perhaps even more sick, the need to establish the diagnosis should be weighed with the understanding that there is an increased risk for bleeding during the procedure. And, you know, obviously informing the patient and the the patient's family of the risks associated with the procedure, the importance of establishing the diagnosis, because that so affects the patient's uh, treatment uh, and the recognition of the uh, infection and the appropriate therapy being necessary for even a a hope of recovery in some of these considerations requires that uh, this biopsy be done. Uh, Bronchoalveolar lavage uh, is also of some benefit in evaluating for various other infections, uh, as well as the microscopic evaluation that may suggest inflammation more than infection. BAL can also be sent for uh, galactomannan assay to uh, increase the specificity for a fungal infection.
2: Yeah, so uh, ex- exactly um, right. So he did end up having a bronchoscopy with, with biopsy. So he has radial probe transbronchial needle aspiration, as well as transbronchial biopsy of the right middle lobe mass. During the bronchoscopy, there was some post-biopsy bleeding that was mildly more than expected. Um, Ultimately, the transbronchial biopsy pathology came back showing necrotizing and organizing pneumonia associated with fungal organisms that were morphologically consistent with mucor. That is, they were broad and ribbon-like.
0: Eek, man. So many things you just said made my skin crawl. Like post-biopsy bleeding, that was more than expected. <laughs> Not my favorite thing. Mucor on the sample. So I you know, I think Mucor is one of these fungal infections that I hear and my red alert goes off because I think of it as so invasive and destructive and something I'm worried about. So certainly something to think about in this patient on rituxan, impaired B cell immunity, like you pointed out, also with neutropenia would be at risk for this but it's a you know super serious infection. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more
2: about MUCOR? I'm sure you learned all about it with this case. Yeah, definitely. So you should always consider MUCOR in neutropenic patients with, with lung findings. Uh, remember that diabetes impairs neutrophil function, and so this also increases your susceptibility for it. And then in diabetic patients, MUCOR infection is more classically the, the rhino-cerebral type, but in neutropenic and stem cell transplant patients, the most common site of infection is actually in the lung. Its pathologic hallmark is vascular invasion with thrombosis, tissue infarction, and necrosis. This is probably what explain the more than expected bleeding during the bronchoscopic biopsies. It's important to recognize that there's no serologic or bronchoalveolar lavage tests for MUCOR. And in one series of 19 biopsy proven cases of pulmonary MUCOR, only one had evidence of MUCOR on the sputum or BAL. So it can really only be diagnosed by biopsy.
0: Wow. That's a great point right there. That's really interesting. I didn't know that.
2: In one study, up to half of cases were actually diagnosed post-mortem. So if you have suspicion for it, it's important to get tissue as soon as possible. And the optimal treatment is aimed at surgical resection, which depends on the organ involvement.
1: Those are some great points, Ben, about mucor, and definitely, as Ferf said, you know, a scary infection to have and, and to treat, and I definitely agree trying to find out as soon as possible if your patient's affected with this. It will impact your treatment approach. Philip, I just wanted to ask if you can comment on how you usually treat mucor as far as antimicrobials, duration, and or surgical resection.
3: Yeah, so mucormycosis is presents differently in, in different patients, and these uh, patients with immunosuppression sometimes have the disease uh, presenting a little bit more indolently. And you know, these patients with uh, uncontrolled diabetes often presents with that, uh, as Ben mentioned, that rhinocerebral type. And uh, in those types of patients, a surgical resection of, or at least an attempt at surgical resection of whatever you can get is so important in the treatment of mucomycosis because medication can only do so much. However, in these uh, immunosuppressed patients where you can uh, get to uh, begin treatment, there may actually be some hope for recovery without necessarily surgical involvement, uh, especially in patients with diffuse involvement. Uh, You know, when your uh, lungs are involved diffusely, it's hard to get in and Remove all parts of the mucor, so you're kind of left with just medical therapy. And medical therapy is really based on uh, intravenous uh, liposomal amphotericin B. That's the standard of care. Usually, to begin treatment, there is some literature that uh, isavuconazole as well as uh, posaconazole can be used to treat. But most people, I think, would be more comfortable beginning with IV amphotericin B or liposomal type, uh, f- hoping that the patient improves somewhat. And after that improvement, I would say at least significant improvement, then transition to oral uh, isofoconazole or posaconazole. continue as oral treatment. And that's, you know, if the patient can get to, the, to be discharged from the hospital with this kind of treatment, that's sort of the best case scenario. And then using uh, the oral treatment for as long as necessary to effect, I would say, complete cure. And how is that defined? I don't really have a great answer for you, but I would assume that You know, if this patient's lung infiltrates uh, improve significantly, that's when you would say that there's complete cure.
0: Yeah, a lot of big ifs in there. I mean, tough, tough infections to treat. And I do like those, you know, principles of trying to resect if you can and then, like, you know, being aggressive and somewhat of an induction therapy almost before you sort of step anything down. Well, this has been an amazing episode. Before we kind of wrap up, Ben, can you just tell us sort of what happened with this patient? What was the follow up?
2: Yeah. So he did end up having a complicated hospital course. He had some complications from the treatment that was attempted for the MUCOR, but overall his respiratory status stabilized. Ultimately, he was able to be discharged home on an oral antifungal. Let's hope he continues to, to do well.
0: Yeah. Fingers crossed. Well, thank you, Ben and Phillips, so much for joining us and being a part of our Fellows Case File series. You know, we're really excited to sort of build this network of people who are interested in medical education and sharing cases across the country and to add the Baylor College of Medicine to that list. So we would love for you guys just to highlight a couple of things that are unique about Baylor or things that you really like about the Baylor Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship. Uh, Ben, how about we start with you?
2: Yeah, for me, it's it's definitely the diversity of the patient population that we see from the county hospital to the VA, the private practice. I feel like we see pretty much everything. Awesome.
0: Yeah. I'll say having a patient with RA complicated by neutrophilic dermatosis, skin infection, and then mucormycosis, pulmonary infection, pretty good. (laughs) Pretty diverse set of cases. Uh, Philip, anything to add?
3: sure I'd, I'd like to add to what Ben said and that uh, we certainly see diversity of patients but I also appreciate the diversity and community here at Baylor College of Medicine from the patients to the trainees to the staff to all of all of our colleagues everyone here makes Baylor College of Medicine a wonderful place to learn and work
1: that's so amazing Ben and Philip and definitely um, Houston uh, be, living in Houston myself definitely a great city um, hopefully you both get to spend some time outside of the hospital enjoying um, enjoying the Houston scenery and other uh, their attractions for that. Uh, as we're wrapping up our case, I know Firph and I like to leave everyone with at least one takeaway point. We went through so many today, but I think mine has really been um, your kind of framework on how you think of immunosuppression in a patient. So trying to determine and identify, is it more of a T-cell deficiency, B-cell deficiency, or neutrophil um, macrophage deficiency and kind of what infections the patients predisposed to. So I really love how you did that framework for us. Farf, what about you? What's um, one of your teaching points from today?
0: Yeah, I have two that I'm taking away. You know, first is Phillips that you know start with the basics, right? Get a sputum sample, get a chest X-ray, send some tests that you maybe not the most specific, but might give you some hints about what's going on. And, you know, be early and aggressive in your diagnostic approach, which I loved. And then I really like Ben's point um, that if you have mucor on the differential. You have to get tissue, right? That you may not be able to make this diagnosis, not in, not in, even even invasively, but with not doing uh, an actual tissue sample. So make sure to be uh, aggressive in your procedures if that's on your differential. Phil, anything
3: to take away from? Yeah, the, I think the immunosuppressed patient is the true patient where a differential diagnosis is absolutely important because it's uh, something that will save you if you uh, ensure that. Uh, Everything you're thinking about, you evaluate for.
2: And for me, yeah, this was a a great case for me to review. Uh, As Christina mentioned, the different types of of immunosuppression. Uh, I I really learned a lot from this. And then also, as Dave mentioned, that it's just so important to think about MUCOR in, in neutropenic patients because you might have to be considering a biopsy. Amazing.
0: Thank you both so much again. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Uh, Thanks everyone for listening. Make sure you join us again in two weeks for our next episode. Check out all our content at www.palmpeeps.com. And if you have a case you want to share, definitely reach out to us. It was produced, recorded, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. And the music was original music made by Eric Rogers.